podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Well, I'm fresh off the night shift from uh, New Zealand, England. So if I look a little bit like a zombie, it's because I am. I have no idea where I am or what I am doing. But, you know, we're just going to plow through this uh, like Neil Wagner struggling with his footmarks. Although I suppose hopefully I do better than Neil Wagner. But let's see how we go. As always, we're going to start with the Patreon questions. Christopher, who says, with the major minor league cricket in America, how's it being looked at at college level? How could and should it be used? Scholarship program to me where global American young cricketers could play and get educated would be brilliant for so many. So I think this is part of major league crickets. That I don't want, I feel like I have to say that like, I don't know this, but I'm just looking at it from a distance and, and I have obviously chatted to quite a few of the people involved before. From my distance, I think this is something they want to do, but it's also something I don't think they believe they can force. So they clearly want um, American cricket in the college system because, you know, if you know anything about American sports, what's, is it maybe ice hockey? Baseball, I suppose, to, uh, um, as well. But, you know, m- the majority of American athletes come via the college system. So I think they desperately want it to be involved. There is actually a cricket college community, but what you're talking about is that sort of NCAA system. Yeah, basketball fan, I should know that, shouldn't I? I just don't like college basketball. But NCAA system, you know, with scholarships um, and everything else. I think in the next five to ten years, there will probably be universities in America that will offer those sorts of um, deals to people. Weirdly enough, Asif Kareem played tennis on a scholarship. Um, at Brown University. And my guess is that there have probably been some very, very good athletes who have played college sports um, who also had cricket. Well, Nassif Kareem's case, I suppose cricket was eventually his number one sport, but the, you know, it was his number two sport at that point when he was taking the, the tennis scholarship. And he picked the tennis scholarship because he could get an education and he couldn't get that through cricket. We know that English cricket had a very good university system uh, for a little while, you know, Foxy Fowler running that and everyone else. Um, it's a really great idea. Um, I, I, I think it's a really interesting thing as well. I, I think it develops more interesting athletes, I think, at times. And by that, I mean they have to study other things and, you know, they're not as one-dimensional. And I always go back to the rugby union thing of r- people who are involved with rugby union and cricket were just like the rugby union professionals who go on to be coaches and administrators and everything else. They're so rounded as people because they have secondary jobs or university and obviously once rugby union's gone professional that will disappear there as well but the only way that we can really do that is through education and i think in most places in the world we're not going to have university education involved with cricket but in in, uh, india usa is certainly one of those places that we can do it i don't know where it is at the moment i suppose is the best way of putting it Satchmo says, are Ashwin and Jadeja the greatest pair of spinners ever to play in the same test team? Laker and Locke might challenge their stats, but Locke was the target. Yeah, I, I actually think when you look back, <clears throat> you know, Laker and Locke, well, Laker was obviously fantastic. I'm trying to remember how, how long Tony Locke's career went for. It certainly had problems with his action. I mean, he took 174 wickets. It's a great record. Don't get me wrong, he's averaging 25-26. You know, how does that compare to someone who played today? He did play 49 tests. To play over a long period of time, but he was kind of, I suppose that again sort of says what, what I mean is, it was kind of a little bit, he wasn't an automatic choice. And a lot of that was also playing in England. Although in those days, you know, England, this is the thing we don't really talk about, but Australia and England specifically, South Africa as well, were all very good for spin at various times in their history. And that is, of course, gone <laughs> completely. I would have thought Grimmett and O'Reilly is the obvious one off the top of my head. Murali and Harath did play together, uh, but not enough, obviously. I don't, think, I don't think you could call them a great pairing. But if you're looking at one-off situation, uh, that would have been quite interesting. I can't think of any others. I feel like, am I missing anyone else? I'm trying to think of the old English spinners. Yeah, I, I, would, I would think that would be my, you know, Grimmett O'Reilly is, is an incredible partnership. Um, 
And they also had a great third spinner. They had an Akshar Patel and Chuck Fleetwood Smith, who we probably never got to see the most of because of the war. So they could have been, you know, and, and that would have been even more dramatic. They would have had, you know, one leg spinner who bowled really, really slow, but with a flipper, one leg spinner who bowled really, really fast, and then a left arm wrist spinner who bowled almost as fast. You know, phenomenal uh, partnership. Um, but yeah, it, that, that's the only one that comes to mind. I'm trying to think if Pakistan ever had. I, I, I mean, it's not quite on the same level, but it is worth talking about Mushi, Saklane, and a freebie all overlap a little bit and all play together. I don't think any one of those three is on the Jadeja Ashwin level, but the fact that they had three spinners available to them at the same time, I mean, they didn't even pick, um, they didn't even pick um, Mushtaq Ahmed when he was probably at his best. Um, that second half of his career, um, I think he was probably a better bowler than the first half of his career. Aditya says, in the past three years, over 21 games, Virat Kohli averages 25 in tests. I think that's in my uh, video today on KL Roll. Do you think this is still a form blip or is it now in decline as a test batter? I think a lot of it, a lot of it comes back to the pace playing pandemic. And I think it really has affected him because I think the wobble ball specifically bothers his cover drive. And I don't think he's worked out a way around that. The fact that he's dipped in lots of different formats of cricket makes me think it's not test specific. And the fact he has bounced back in some of these other formats makes me worry less. However, I find it very hard to think that he's going to come back and have what, what Steve Smith looks like he's currently having this completely pull his, well, not that, not that Virat can't do that, but completely pull his batting apart, build it back up again and come back and look spectacular. It's not that I don't think Virat can make hundreds because I think he could make test hundreds. It's not that I think he'll continue to average 25 because I think that is ab abnormally low. Um, that would suggest he's finished that average and watching him, I don't believe he, it, well, I mean, he's certainly not finished. But what I think is we might be seeing the last couple of years of his career where he has that sort of normal veteran peak where he might play some incredible innings and be very important at times. I'd be doubtful if over a three-year period he could average 50 now. And obviously at his best, he could. And it's a real shame because I kind of feel like, I mean, for me, he was almost my favorite of the of the big four. He was the one that I enjoyed watching the most, maybe because he's the most classical of, of them. And I find them all interesting, but in different ways. But he was always the one that I sort of bet on um, to begin with. And you know, at times I was right. And, and maybe in the long run, I, I won't quite come out on, uh, on top on that one. But I, I feel that we maybe saw what, three or four absolute peak years where he was incredible. And outside of that, it's not been as good. And I feel like he's too good a player to only leave us with that kind of legacy. Will says, is the current period of Indian home dominance up there with the greatest ever? Uh, won every series and only two test defeats in the last decade. I mean, yes. To be honest, I don't really look at home records. I'm I, I, more, much more likely to look at an away record of, you know, how's this guy? How's this guy? How's this? 11 guys um, going when they're away from home. And I would look at that more. Uh, so, I mean, I can't tell you. I, know, I mean, I know Australia and the West Indies obviously did very, very well over a long period of time. The West Indies wouldn't have lost from 76 to 95 off the top of my head. Is that right? Pakistan draw with them at home. Maybe someone else drew with them at home. And uh, they lost in New Zealand. Did they? I can't even remember too many others. Uh, Australia, again, what would they have been? 1992 until 2000 and what was the South Africa series? Uh, 2007, eight. No, that was India. Um, 2008, nine, um, uh, that period. Anyway, they drew a series with India in that drew a series with New Zealand. Those are really, really long runs. However, India hasn't even been losing tests. Although that is the big difference, I think, between the Australia and the New Zealand, uh, sorry, Australian West Indies era and India's era is there just aren't many draws anymore. And usually, and um, what's happened is away teams aren't worse on win-loss record or not that much worse on, on win-loss record. What they really lost worse at is on um, drawing. They just don't draw any tests and all those go to wins. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's been a magnificent uh, period of cricket for, for India without question. Bloody Bugger says, assuming the appropriate technology existed, what would happen if LBW rule, law, ignored the fact that the bat edged the ball? If a batter edges the ball onto his pad, but the ball is predicted to hit the stumps, would this be out? Assuming the appropriate technology exists, well, I think he could do that with Hawkeye, I would have thought, from the angles. It wouldn't be as, it, don't think it'd be as accurate as a normal one. But how can you ignore if the bat edges the ball, but the ball is predicted to hit the stumps? Yeah, I don't know how you do that because you can 
what if you middle the ball? Because you're talking about edges, right? But it's it's more than just edges. It's kind of everything that hits <laughs> hits the bat. Um, but yeah, I think I think the technology could do that. I think uh, I just don't think it would be as accurate. And I think the point is, once you have hit the ball, you can't be out leg before wicket. I think that's a very solid way of of doing things. I'm not sure what could be grant what could be made of the fact. And and from an, from an umpiring perspective, if you talk about the law specifically from an umpiring perspective it would be an absolute nightmare because the angles would also suddenly be different at least with an lbw the angles are generally okay so it'd be worse from that case you'd obviously have a lot more lbws it's already quite a bowler dominated game in test level might help in, in other formats if you want to ball wickets although to be fair there's been a, a drop of runs um uh, in averages um in odi cricket and t20 cricket since kookaburra changed those balls so i'm not really sure what is to be gained from that uh, would be would be my my main question on that one. I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the demon Fred Spotheth onwards, cricket has always been Hasut, Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoab and Imran's incredible manes. Not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair. And so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic moustache, we can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rear guard, always put your trust in Manscaped, who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red inker code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. Manon says, have you ever bet on cricket personally? It feels like someone as well-versed as you in analytics would have an edge. Back when I was younger, wasn't really a thing. My f- my friends and I did. We we you know I grew up in Melbourne, so obviously we bet on everything, but we didn't really bet on cricket. Um, I bet a li- I used to make a little bit of money off NBA betting on the NBA. I found that you know kind of you could follow the schedules and realize when people had back to backs or might want to rest or anything like that. Uh, that w- that was a pretty simple one. I bet a little bit on Aussie Rules football. And mostly horses and greyhounds and all that sort of stuff. There was one time I was betting on cricket, and it was just to see. It was j- just an experiment from my own point of view to see how bad the markets were at working out when a draw was c- going to come. So I don't know if this is not still the case. I don't believe, but for a long time, a lot of people in in the betting industry, especially the traders, made a just a fortune from betting on the draw. So what happens is you got a test match, and there's two, maybe two quick wickets. And they would then bet the result. And then there would be like an hour and a half partnership where it didn't look like anyone was going to get a wicket. And everyone would bet the draw um, and they would trade against them. And I I just had a look at that once to see if it was a viable option. And it really was. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's certainly something um, from that point of view. Uh, I was asked during lockdown, I had a job interview to actually go and work with a betting company um, and help them come up with with uh, how to trade better and how to you know exploit the cricket markets and everything. I, I thought it was quite an interesting opportunity, but I wasn't sure it was you know completely the right fit for me. Um, and it, you know, I, I think in the end they probably thought I was going to leave after a month anyway, so they didn't do it. So no, I don't really bet. I, I probably could. I don't know if I'd win. I'd probably get all emotional like with normal betters. You know, uh, although maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> Ian says, don't know how closely you manage to look at the WEPL auctions, but the sums involved are terrific and can hopefully continue to push women's cricket further on an upward curve. My question is, Alicia Healy at 70, 70 likes to the UP Warriors, is that the best IPL or WPL signing anyone has ever made? I don't think it's the best anyone. There's been some good ones over the years. Was it, I can't remember who, wasn't there an early Rajasthan? Was it Sean Marsh went for no money early on? I can't remember. There was definitely an Australian player who dominated uh, early on in the IPL. So there's been some good ones. Look, I think the thing with Alyssa Healy, Ian, is if you go back and have a look at my video on batting, she she just uh, on women batting um, in T20, sorry, uh, you can just see that she hasn't been that T20 player for a long time. She still has it within her, but she's been struggling for a little while. She's also probably rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way uh, within Indian cricket. So I think that um, that is a part of it. Sophia Dunkley, is, I thought, was probably better value. I'm trying to remember what Jess Jonathan eventually went for as well. Mika Shute was quite good value. So I think there was a, quite a few players that I thought were better value than I would have expected. I, I didn't quite oh, – they, they seem to go so heavy on all-rounders that 
there was a few specialist players that I just saw. I mean, Beth Mooney is a value. <laughs> I know she went for half the maximum, but even she's a value bet, I would have thought, uh, looking at that. Josh says, what if each year a uh, big nine test team played two series at home, two series away, with each series having three to five tests, three to five ODIs, and a three to five T20 international? So I get stuff like this all the time. The amount of times that people um, contact me with, you know, new new ways of, of of making the calendar work, and you know, new versions of the World Test Championship or the Super League, or you know, any any of these other things that exist or, or should exist. The truth is that there's no one to push this through, and it would take away the power of the big teams because they like their bilateral uh, agreements. There's many things you could do, but the horse is bolted. We're never going to have a good international system ever again unless the markets change somehow in a way that I'm not anticipating because the boards had a chance three or four years ago to get together and do something like this, come up you know, with a proper league structure for test cricket and ODI cricket and you know, move T20 cricket to Commonwealth Games, Olympics, World Cup cycle, allow the IPL to have a big window, all these sorts of things that they could have done, pay the players out of a central pool, um, sell it as a streaming service, except all these things that they could have done that would have allowed them to fix cricket, they didn't do. And the big teams didn't want to do it, but the small teams also didn't want to do it. So, you know, pe- people say, oh, I don't understand why it's just not seven and seven uh, in the tests, World Test Championship. I'm saying, because the small teams didn't want to go to the second division. Basically, you had a, a bunch of people who voted themselves uh, into being feeder um, countries for the IPL into the future. And it didn't actually have to be that way. You could, I don't know if you could ever beat the IPL, but there are things you could have done uh, to secure international cricket uh, for the smaller nations, that, uh, to actually make more money from international cricket and to run it better so that it was on a more equal footing. I didn't want to do that. So here we are. James says, the legend goes that under the West Indies, uh, Lloyd, Richards, and Richardson didn't sledge. Have you heard anything to the contrary, or does this seem to be true? It's not true. You've got to remember that sledging is a particular, I suppose Australia was sort of the pioneers of this. If you go back and you talk to Ian Chappell, he will say that they didn't particularly sledge that much, that team. I don't think they had to. And a bit like the West Indies, they just kind of stared at you um, uh, and intimidated, intimidated you with fast bowlers and things like that. But there is certainly a thought process that sledging becomes much bigger into the 80s and into the 90s. And if you think about the West Indies, that would mean that they weren't there. Words have always been shared on a cricket field. It's part of the proximity. I mean, most sports have it, but cricket has the combination of 11 people around two uh, the umpires quite often being 20 meters away, the the gaps between the balls, right? There's always been talking, but actual sledging, as a as certainly as an art form, certainly seems to come around. Well, it had been in Australian cricket for a long time, but not always something that was seen at the international level to the level that it probably was by the 90s. But yeah, I don't, you know, I think words were exchanged. The West Indians talked, right? They certainly talked to players, and they. You know, if you talk to Australian players and uh, English players about the West Indies, there was plenty of talk about how you weren't good enough and everything else. But I don't think it was the kind of sledging that uh, Australia became known for, that mental disintegration, which is, you know, Steve Waugh's fancy word for him being an arsehole, right? (laughs) I think that really does come about later. And if that's what people mean when they say sledging, I think that's fair. But there was plenty of warnings that you were going to get hit in the head by bounces and that you weren't very good. You know, I think that that to one in one way or another has always existed. WG Grace sledged. Um, what he didn't do is the more aggressive um, style of things, but he definitely told people they weren't very good regularly. Manon says, would you compare WG Grace to Wilt Chamberlain? How are they different or similar? It's interesting how often people think Wilt Chamberlain's one of the, you know, uh, you know, top five basketballers of all time. I'm not sure he is. He had some incredible seasons, but when you really go through Will Chamberlain's numbers, you know, he's not as good as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or, you know, Michael Jordan or, you know, LeBron James. And, you know, I think there's quite, you know, <clears throat> you could you could argue that Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird maybe had better 10-year runs. He was very good at getting stats, uh, but it didn't it didn't translate to team success consistently. Um, and quite often getting the ball out of his hand was when his teams were better. Not that he wasn't a fantastic player. Uh, now, George, if you're really looking for the player who is most like WG Grace from basketball, you're looking at a guy called George Mikan. 
who invented modern basketball in many ways by being one of the first tall players to dominate the game. They changed, I think he had three law changes, or rule changes, sorry, wrong sport, uh, based on him. They had the the shot clock basically sort of comes in because of Mike and was the key widened for Mikan and the goaltending um, rule was brought in for Mikan. That's more WG Grace. Uh, although WG Grace didn't have laws changed for him. Um, although you could have argued that by the time what WG Grace did led to, you know, Hobbs and, and Bradman, uh, which meant that, you know, cricket did have to change. Otherwise, batters were just way too dominant. So I think that's WG Grace is probably more like a George Mikan figure. And George Mikan's huge. I, I mean, George Mikan's huge in basketball as a player and then as an administrator because he's heavily involved with the three-point line as well and physically huge <laughs> from that point of view. But he really does change the way that basketball was played. Originally, basketball was for shorter, quicker players. And George Mikan coming in, and I don't know what his actual height was, but he was about a foot taller than everyone else. That's really what WG Grace is. So WG Grace is not tall, obviously has incredible hand-eye coordination, but his real skill is the fact that he grew up in an era where half the bowlers were bowling underarm and half the bowlers were bowling side-arm and overarm, that sort of combination. And he paired those two styles together with his batting to basically react to the ball in a way that just a seven-year-old would do now, right? Go forward when it's here and go back when it's here. Um, that's really what Grace uh, does. And then you add on sort of Ranji and Trumper to that of guys who are, t- you know, turning the ball to leg intentionally, uh, whereas beforehand most of the balls that went to leg were either already bowled down leg uh, or were mishit to leg. That's the, really the combination of those things. Yeah, Wilt Chamberlain is probably maybe someone like more, someone like Sidney Barnes, um, I would have thought. You know, is is the Wilt Chamberlain of, of cricket and someone that just has absolutely truly phenomenal stats. We maybe missed some of the best years as well. You know, Chamberlain comes to the NBA a little bit late. Sid Barnes, Sidney Barnes is it's not always playing because he doesn't want to. He gets paid more not to play for England than he does for England, all those sorts of things. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, still, and Sidney Barnes is still an incredibly important person. But, uh, you know, I don't think he, I think now with, with the benefit of, stats guru i think we can see that as good a bowler as sydney barnes was he was not on that on the level that he should have been got from what we saw of his test record i should say you know he averages 20 21 against australia and whatever it is minus seven against south africa he still has to take those wickets but we know some of those were poorer teams we know he's bowling on matting all these sorts of different things i still think he's still absolutely fantastic and deserves to be mentioned and probably pioneered a form of bowling that he was so good at that Afterwards, it kind of died off as if he was the perfection of it. And, you know, it takes a long time before we ever see another bowler like Sid Barnes, who is essentially a combination of someone who can seam the ball, swing the ball, and spin the ball. Uh, And in some ways, that's Wilt Chamberlain, right? You know, the ability to be the size of George Mikan, but also the skill level to do all the other things of of someone, um, uh, you know, of someone smaller than him. But, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating... Thing. And also, basketball develops differently because of the height factor, I think, um, which I do think is a really, really interesting key thing that cricket doesn't have. You know, the athletes themselves sometimes, uh, tra- you know, do something, but they usually do it in a way that you can't replicate. So Shane Warne and Murali, two perfect examples of that. Jeff Thompson, another perfect example of that. You know, uh, Akhtar, Tate, Lee, you know, you have these – People can study them all they want, but no one else has been able to match that athleticism with that action again, uh, which is a little bit different in basketball where even while Wilt is playing, you have you know Bill Russell before him and then you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar straight after him where you know tall people are starting to you know get to that level and then it continues. Uh, that's everything from Patreon. Great questions. Uh, remember, you can support us on Patreon because it helps and we can do more shows and Blah, 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 blah. I was going to say it helps us pay Barrett, but I suppose it doesn't because he never comes on any podcast. He probably owes me money at this point, if we're being honest. Uh, I'm going to take a short break and while I just have a look, see if there's any super chats and anything else that I find in the chat. Uh, but you're listening to Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimber. Ramukaka says, how can we reconcile ODI batting, bowling average, strike rate after the two balls were introduced in 2011, comparing the legends across generations may not be at fair, at least if we consider that after 2011, we never had reverse swing. Oh, man, you're way off here, right? And I'll tell you why you're way off. Viv Richards started uh, dominating white ball cricket when there were no white balls. 
Uh, there are in the records there are 55 and 60 over games. Uh, power play restrictions. We used to have fielding restrictions where you used you had to have two catches in the first what was it 15 overs. The changes you're talking about that as one little change. Even from 2011 onwards, the the, the having four fielders out of the circle when the power play is having you know all these different things. Did we not have a floating power play for a while? The super sub. One day cricket, literally, I've, I've said this from the start. It's like, it, it's interesting to me that T20 cricket's now getting to the point where we're starting to change it and tweak it and obviously the 100 and all these different rules. And it'd be really interesting to see what happens next. One day cricket has always been like that. There have been so many silly and stupid rules and two balls and then one ball. And, and uh, the other thing I would say is we've always had two balls in one day cricket. The really important thing to remember <laughs> From the moment we had white balls, no white balls ever lasted 50 overs. They're dog shit. Absolutely rubbish uh, balls. Uh, and so they don't last 50 overs anyway. What we what we did was we changed it to two brand new balls. Um, and that was because, what was the point of having a 35 o- over ball and then replacing it with another ball that's been used for 20 overs and it just uh, goes. You want Essentially, the reverse swing is a problem. I don't think it's bothered spinners as much as we probably thought it would, um, only because uh, spinners maybe now through T20 cricket are used to using those balls, um, you know, when the ball's a little bit newer. But what it has done is it allowed for the ball to be hard at the end, which means that people can hit at the end. It's kind of, you know, part of the selling point, right? So, no, when you're comparing players across um, eras, what you're really doing is comparing them to see how good they were against the other players who played in their era, right? So when we look at, no, no one's sitting here going, Viv Richards is one of the best ODI players of all time. Wait a minute, his strike rate's only 87. I think it's 87, something like that, right? What we're, what we're saying is Viv Richards was striking at 87 when everyone else was striking at 62, right? The percentage at which that Viv Richards was better than everyone else is phenomenal on, on average and on strike rate. That's how you, you look at players across eras, right? How did they go against other players of their time? Um, you know, it's the Bradman argument where people go, oh, you know, Back in those days, he had to play against farmers and, and, and you know, and, and, and you know guys, guys who came in from the office to play cricket on the weekend. So, yeah, so did everyone else. They didn't average 100, right? Same with WG Grace. Oh, it was amateur back then, and they were playing on, uh, on wickets with, with turds on them, which is actually true. Um, yeah, but he was averaging 40 when everyone else was averaging 15 or 20, right? We can, that's how we tell if someone is really good in their era. Because I get that question a lot about WG Grace, actually. Not so much Viv Richards. I think that he's fairly well accepted and Bradman's fairly well accepted. But WG Grace, you get that a lot. People go back and especially look at his test record. I mean, he was way past over the hill by the time he played test cricket. But that people look at his test record and they go, wait a minute, what's going on here? And you go, well, first thing you have to know is that was actually a pretty good test record, especially for someone who was, you know, in his 40s. Um, and secondly, uh, you know, he once scored more um, hundreds than all of county cricket combined one year. You know, that's what we're comparing them to. So that's the best way of doing stuff like that. But thank you for the question. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, Sanath says, do you think it is easier to develop a fast bowling contingent over spin bowling? The question stems from the ability of the subcontinent teams to develop fast bowlers suitable for um, uh, senior countries as compared to vice versa. I think, well, it, that's a really interesting question because if you look at, over the history of the game, when uh, England and Australia had better facilities for spin bowlers, they still did find the you know the ability to to do that. They still found spinners in those days. I think what has certainly happened in Australia, well, New Zealand have always struggled with spin, but New Zealand and England is that they've struggled to find spinners in periods where their pitches have not backed up spin bowling. And South Africa is a really interesting one because. South African conditions have clearly changed and spin bowling is much better. And suddenly they have three spin bowling options. And, you know, that's not recruiting Imran Sahirin or anything like that. That's three homegrown spin options, right? That would tell you that something has changed within South African cricket. And talking to some of the spinners, not always the way that they're treated has changed. So my guess is that what's changed is the pitches. So I do think from that perspective, fast bowlers are always in the game. And, and I know there are certain pitches in Asia where that's less the case. But what I mean by fast bowlers are always in the game is you don't, you know, you still have the ability to bowl fast. Whereas there, there are n- very few 
test teams that we've ever seen where teams have gone in with all spin attack, right? Whereas you do go in with all fast bowling attack. So if you come, I've always thought that it should be a natural advantage if you come from a place where the ball spins a lot, because you still have to develop fast bowlers at a certain level, even if it's, you know, uh, just in the old fashioned Indian way of having one seamer and, and, and one medium pacer. Whereas the problem for maybe a country like New Zealand is you probably don't need a spinner that much. And so you don't develop them. Um, but it's, it's a really interesting development thing. Um, fast bowlers gen, generally tend to be more athletic than spinners, right? Or, or have that sort of fast twitch, um, loose-limbed, you know, athleticism, typical athleticism, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. So I think from from that point, Sanath, it's a, it's a more, you know, and we've seen this before where, where literally teams go out and look for athletes rather than uh, bowlers. Whereas spin bowling seems to be that it needs to come from an environment where the surfaces help and then also that there is good people around. So I think to be a good T20 spinner, T20 spinner, yeah, you could probably come through via YouTube the way that Sandeep or Rashid Khan did. But I think if you're going to be a consistently good threat in test match cricket, chances are you need to come through a system that has had other very good spinners available to you. And if you look at England, for instance, their reliance on Asian spin coaches for their spit for for their tweakers really does tell you that they they're not even really fully backing the spinners that they've had that they've picked before. You know, I mean, Gareth Batty's a coach, um, and Graham Swan's uh, not as a, a commentator. I'm trying to think of who else, you know, Monty Panasar's probably not going to be a natural coach. Whereas if you look at you know in Sri Lanka or, or India or even Pakistan, there's probably multiple options, not just at the international level, but even you know more players out there like Gareth Batty who they trust. I think that is probably more a skill-led thing, whereas the ability to run in very fast with the seam up is maybe a more athletic uh, thing. So I think the coaching matters more for spin bowling than it does for seam up. It's funny because I've been doing this wobble ball piece. I must have talked to 200 bowlers and bowling coaches over the last two, two years now trying to get to the bottom of it. And it is remarkable how often you talk to someone and they go, mate, I just... I held the seam straight up and I ran in and I bolted as fast as I could. And that's not how spin works, right? So I do think there is a big difference between athleticism and the kind of athleticism you need for spin bowling, which is you know, flexibility and strength in your fingers and all those sorts of things. And uh, But you also then need uh, you know, to be able to read butters and, and everything else. But it's a, it's a really good question, and I'm glad that you, uh, you asked it on Super Chat. <laughs> so I didn't miss it. Uh, Shubham says, I wish I saw my partner as often as I see you here. Yeah, I feel like recently I've done a lot, haven't I? If you want, you can come and listen to TalkSport as well. Um, I'm on there a few, few hours um, every day as well. But thank you for the support, mate. Yoganath says, hi, Jared. Have the WPL teams missed a trick and not picking Laura Wolfart, who can win games almost single-handedly as she'd done in the BBL for Adelaide Strikers? I think that goes back to Ian's, I think it was Ian's question from before, of it did seem to be and overlooking of a lot of the specialists. I'm trying to think of who the player was who'd missed out. There was certainly, well, uh, Kate Cross was someone that I thought, Laura Wolfart, um, Lizelle Lee. I don't know if she quite counts as a specialist because she's a wicketkeeper as well. But there was a couple of players where I just thought, those are very good players. But because they went all on, on the all-rounders, I'd be very shocked if Laura Wolfart doesn't have a very good IPL career. I wonder if they were looking at some of the same numbers as I was and that she... If, you, if you're looking for someone to bat all the way through the innings, I think she's fantastic. Um, but if you're not looking for that kind of opener, I wonder if she's the ideal partner um, from from that perspective, uh, you know, for your team. Uh, but I don't know, um, I suppose, is is the best answer there. But I wonder if that was a part of the reason why um, she didn't go. Jugal, who says, Hi, Jared. Were you surprised that most teams didn't buy an associate player in the WPL? Is the quality difference such that the worst Indian uncapped player is better than an associate player? I am a bit surprised. I thought the Thai wicketkeeper was a good person to have on your books. I've forgotten her name, sorry. I thought the Scottish wicketkeeper was another good person to have on your books. And she, you know, uh, Sarah Boyce, I think she can play. I don't think there was anyone else that I was like automatically should have got involved, but there were certainly some other players out there. And I wonder if it was, would have been worth a flyer. It's a really interesting rule and it will see how it would go. The one thing I would say is 
I wasn't asked to do any consultancy on the women's uh, draft, but I know a few of the people who were. There's no way they're watching any associate teams in women's cricket. That's not having a go at these people. They're very good at their job, but they're not. Like all the Prendergast, you'll notice I had her as someone to watch for this World Cup. How many people had seen Ola Pendergast play before this World Cup? Um, and so far, she, you know, I don't think it, they've made a mistake not picking her. Gabby Lewis is another one from Ireland who's quite an interesting player. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I think when you look at it from that perspective, if you're not seeing them um, and, and, you're not, um, and you're not in that environment, it's very hard. And then, so we, we're, with Ola's record, when I looked at it, I was like, it's a really good record, but she – Pakistan was the best team she played consistently. She played Netherlands and Scotland were the other two that she played the most. Okay, and her numbers held up against all three teams. So it wasn't that she was, uh, you know, bashing a bunch of um, attacks that don't work. But this is the problem, right? If George Munsey is scoring at a strike rate of 170 in associate cricket for the men, we can go, okay, he's probably not going to do that um, in, in a male competition, but he'll probably go at 145. Right, we can have a pretty good estimation of that if if he's done it for a long period of time, and then also we will have seen George Munsey play against a couple of better teams and go. Actually, he smashed a couple of these teams as well. You know, he's someone worth having a go at. Then he gets to the top level, we get a better idea of him, and we can you know judge him from then on in. These players, this World Cup probably came a little bit too soon for the Ireland uh, women, and we probably don't know as much about them as we we could. But going forward, I would think that. If I was working for a team, I'd be trying to work out how I get to see as many of these uh, associate women as possible because it feels like a really obvious loophole to exploit. And, you know, if you've been on my channel, you know I massively enjoy exploiting loopholes. Pushka <laughs> uh, says, when we talk about how rich a country is, we discuss it in terms of per capita. Similarly, when we discuss about how rich cricket bodies are, should we factor in population? <laughs> I don't, yes and no, uh, because part of that I think I don't think makes make sense because part of the reason the cricket boards are rich is because of the size of their audience. You know, um, it, I mean, if you look at it, the three, the four boards. I suppose that's not quite true with Bangladesh, but even then, probably rather be Bangladesh going ahead than New Zealand, right? Um, no, I don't think it quite works the way you think it works from that point of view because really what you're looking at is how many people. Uh, um, is the advertising market willing to pay for? So you still need, you might need 20 million people to watch a test match uh, on TV in India to make a similar amount of money that you would need for 2 million to watch a test match in England because of the way that different advertising rates and everything else work. However, you know, India has the uh, extra people available to be able to watch that many people, uh, to be able to watch it in a way that England doesn't. So it goes both ways. I don't think that's a clean uh, a model as you think it is, Pushka, but thank you very much for the question. Let me just take a quick break, uh, and, I'm, uh, and I will be back. I've got about another seven or eight questions, and then I'm going to fall asleep because I have been awake for such a very, very, very long time. So So long that I can't remember what I was in the middle of that sentence saying. All right, uh, let's get to the last of the questions. So Kyle says, do batters have to pick googlies um, and slow balls out of the hand or can top-level batters read spin in the air? So googlies are picked from the hand. They are picked in the air. And then obviously some players try and pick them off the pitch. That's probably the trickiest one. Um, with uh, These days with the scrambled seam, what I'm told is it's much harder to pick wrong ones uh, in the air in, in the way when the seam was... Um, still or uh you know rotating like a ufo <laughs> um it was much easier to tell which direction the ball was spinning uh slow balls you're, you're picking slow balls because a normal slow ball the, the wrist is just fully behind the ball sorry a normal delivery the wrist is just fully behind the ball and a slow ball you have to break your wrist in one way or another um or do something to the ball um it, which is one of the reasons that you know something like the um Knuckleball can be a little bit tough, although there are certainly batters who can pick the knuckleball. But as you probably know, Kyle, from baseball, picking it doesn't always mean that you hit it. So in baseball, the seams uh, can be read for spin, uh, as you say. That was traditionally the case in cricket, but I think that's, from what I've heard anyway, that is getting tougher and tougher because uh, of the way it goes. But 
the vast majority of batters, I would have thought throughout the history of cricket anyway, would have picked it out of the hand, uh, certainly rather than the ball. The, the, picking the ball, picking which direction the ball is spinning by it in the air is one of those skills that it feels like it, it's always been a minority of cricketers that do that. It's much easier. It's, it's much easier in cricket to pick it out of the hand than it ever is in the air, right? Once it's in the air, it's almost too late. You really want to pick it as it's being released. DM says, what are your thoughts on New Zealand selecting Stock um, Kugelin, uh, given his history? Extremely disappointed as a fan, and I don't think he's that good anyway. He's definitely struggled this year. Um, or last year, was it? He took six wickets or something r- ridiculous. Look, he's already played for New Zealand. So in that way, it's like I don't see what the difference is in playing in a test match and in playing in everything else. I mean, I followed that court case a little bit. I think I missed it at the time and went back. I mean, he said some things and did some things that were just, obviously undefensible um, if he wasn't found guilty of course it certainly wasn't by lack of trying it seems by by the prosecution and there were things that he said that you can't really forgive anyway i mean from that perspective i would not want him to play but there's probably many um athletes who i would say are in a similar boat and that's where we are there's no moral clause um in those sorts of things it's really interesting too and i've said this before the whole i think people still look at representing your country is something different um, than I do. I think a lot of people see representing your country as a right, whereas I see it as you're the top of your professional game and, you know, you should be picked because um, uh, that's where you are, you know, which is why I have no problem with players changing countries and all those other things that, that go on. And, and I wouldn't have always had that belief. That's probably something I've had working in the game and around the game. But I think for the people who go, it's a right to represent your country, I think a lot of them are going to look at what he um, was involved with. Uh, you know, the uh, I'm, I, I can't remember if the charges were sexual assault or was it rape or whatever they were. I can't, sorry, I just can't remember the full details because I have been awake for so long. But whatever those charges were, um, and the things that came out in that court that just sounded horrific that he, you know, that he was even saying. From from that perspective, um, you know, I, I can see why a lot of people would would um, take issue with that. And um, I think it's fair. I, you know, it's going to be brought up for the rest of his career. On his bowling, yeah, it was a fascinating decision to bring him in. It's such a weird-looking bowler. Um, I've always thought that as a T20 bowler. He, he kind of looks like he's going to bowl much faster than he does and doesn't. And it's a it's a weird one to bring a player like him in because I my guess is he doesn't have a very high ceiling as a test player, and so you know New Zealand are bringing him in and probably going to get more abuse than they would normally. I don't know if there's been protests at the ground, but it wouldn't surprise me if if there were for a player who's not particularly upside. You know, which, which I I just find fa- it's a fascinating social experiment as well, right? Uh, Oren says, hi, Jared, if you had to pick an all-time non-Indian spin quartet to tour India currently. Okay, so I've got to pick a, a, an all-time Indian lineup. Uh, sorry, non-Indian spin lineup. So you would go with uh, Murali. Uh, you would go with Bill O'Reilly because he's the, probably, at least for his era, the fastest leg spinner. So let's call him a fast leg spinner. I wonder if, based on that pace again, you'd be looking at someone like Shahida Freedy. And then what you want the best off spinner available. So who's our best off spinner of all time? Uh, I suppose you could go Laker. You could go West Indian bowler whose name has completely escaped me with the massive hands, the, the former world record holder. I'm trying to think of other great off spinners that there have been. How many of the best off spinners ever have been Indian men? <laughs> is is another interesting question. Uh, just, they really like off spin there, but um, yeah, I think it, I'd have to go through the numbers and and break. But you know, Laker would be a pretty good one, and I think that probably gives you your best bet. And if if you thought that O'Reilly and a freebie were too similar, I'm trying to think of another another kind of uh, leg spinner that you would take. I think Warren kind of proved he was a bit too slow for those conditions. Or that the Indian batters were too good against him in those sorts of conditions. Although, having said that, with the wickets um, as they are at the moment, maybe that wouldn't bother him as much. When Warren played there, they were probably better batting wickets. Um, I saw um, somewhere recently just, I think, Anil Kumble, did he bowl 50 overs a match or something? I was just looking this up recently for, for, for another video. So, yeah, so from that perspective, uh, yeah, quite. Um, uh, I think those are the ones off the top of my head. I'd have to go through all the... I feel like I'm missing a couple of players that are very, very obviously. You, uh, Hedley Verity is one that I'm interested in. Hugh Tayfield is probably another one. 
but yeah, those are the ones. That, that, um, who is the South African spinner as well? So great South African spinner who basically never got hit off the square would be really interesting there as well. Uh, DM says, thoughts on Blair Tickner today? Understand him somewhat as a white ball bowler, but just don't get how he makes a test squad with a first-class average of 35. Yeah, I think you might have asked me about this before. Someone else did. I haven't seen enough of him with the red ball to have strong opinions, but his, his record doesn't inspire. In fact, I think he averages something like 60 at Mount Manganui in first-class cricket, only from two or three matches. But again, um, look, he's got a couple more, you know, he's got, at least got one more innings. He's, he's got a decent wobble ball. He's got a middling release and middling pace. I wonder what he's, and he's accurate, but, you know, he's not super accurate. I wonder what skill he has that would allow him to be consistently threatening at test cricket. And if you don't have one or two or a combination, you know, someone like Matthew Potts' skill level, I wonder how you can ever be a threat. And at times today, that's how I kind of saw him, you know, and, I, and I've seen him bowl a little bit, in, obviously, in T20 cricket and in some, some of the one days where he played for New Zealand. And that's my big thought with him, you know, consistently is, how is he going to consistently threaten this, this batter? Um, and I don't see that in his cricket so far. Imad says, uh, with both the Grand Home and Corey Anderson opting to play T20 leagues, do you think New Zealand might also regress in coming years? I mean, to be fair to Corey Anderson, I think kind of just... His body fell apart, didn't it? The um, Grandholm and and Bolt both did it in in a young an older age. If people start doing it at a younger age, I think that would be a bigger issue for New Zealand cricket. But yeah, I mean, it could definitely happen. I think that, to be honest, though, I don't know when it was. Maybe what fifteen years ago, we said the exact same thing, and um, and they went on to have arguably their greatest era ever. Not even arguably, I think it was just easily their greatest era ever. Um, and so I think you know. Think so many things change and, and the way that things happen. We don't really know what's going to happen in the future and what sort of players they're going to develop. But yeah, I think they should regress. Um, I mean, regardless of the three names you've said, BJ Watling, Ross Taylor, Kane Williamson's elbow, you know, there's lots of reasons to say why that should regress as a team. Uh, you know, Neil Wagner and Tim Southey aren't going to bowl for it for either. So I don't think it's just what you're talking about. It's, you know, we've already seen a regression of New Zealand um, and it might be even more stark than we thought. Big Nashram says, do you think England's high-risk approach will get them to 300-plus scores against better bowling attacks like India and Australia? Look, we they, they did do pretty well against India. That was the, one of the flat ball tests, wasn't it? I think it was. I'm so confused now. Um, so, so from that perspective, it should be harder against, you know, a full-strength Australia in England. It should be harder against India when they're all firing as well. It should be harder when the ball's not flat. It should be harder when the pitches and flat you know all these different things but at a certain point you have to go it's and it's not the other thing i would say is it's not just about them scoring at a quick rate right they've changed the way they bowl they've changed the way they've declared they've changed the way they've thought about cricket um so i think there's a lot of moving parts there I, i'm still skeptical that it will work against a you know one of the two best bowling attacks in the world even new zealand if kyle jameson um uh and, and colin de Grandholm, had been fit all the way through. And Neil Wagner had been available for that series. Or well, actually he was available, wasn't he? Did they just not play him? <laughs> I'm trying to remember which test he played in, which test he did. But even then, had New Zealand been firing a little bit better, it would have been interesting. And had they been using proper balls, it would have been really interesting, right? So a lot of things have fallen in England's favour. But I do think that they've really revolutionised many different parts of their cricket. And we're focusing on the bit that's easy, which is their run rate. But I think there's lots of good things that they're doing at the moment. And those should hold up. Jimmy asked a question from 2007. He says, can a decent under-16 boys team beat the Australian women's team? No, they would get murdered. They wouldn't get Meg Lanning out. <laughs> just would not get Meg Lanning out. No, that, that's a question from when crick, uh, women's cricket was amateur. Those days, they probably were. Maybe not. Yeah, they probably were, you know, on occasion. Jeez, it'd have to be a pretty good under-16 team, though, wouldn't it? You know, <laughs> it'd have to be an elite, you know, have to have a couple of future first-class cricketers at least in that team, um, I would have thought, if it's an under-16 team. My experience of bowling to women cricketers, and, and remember I've bowled to men professional cricketers and women professional cricketers before, it's bloody hard to get out. They're very good uh, technique-wise. Um, I've faced some of the faster women bowlers, and I play, you know, I played representative under-16 cricket. Most of the women bowlers I, I faced at that top level were better. Um, spinners is a bit different, although spinners, women spinners are quite interesting and they use a slightly smaller ball too, don't they? But no, I mean, come on. 
I mean, at least Perry would. She, at least Perry and, and Meg Lanning would not go out. So, no. I'm not sure there's a under-16 te- boys team in the world that would beat any of the top three teams, um, maybe not even South Africa. Um, I don't At the moment, anyone could ball out the New Zealand team, so that's not great. So I don't know how much cricket you've been watching, Jimmy, but, yeah, couldn't be much more wrong there. Up it says, what would be the path for an MNC, MNC data analyst with a lot of interest in cricket to become a full-time data analyst? Look, I'll, everyone asks this question. It's the same thing all the time. You just need to be in a situation where you – you just need to be in a situation where you can uh, find out things that teams don't know. Contact the players and coaches and administrators and general managers and owners and say, you're doing this, but you should be doing this. That's basically all it is. you know. And people like myself and Joe Harris and Dan Weston and, and some of the others – we had slightly more public platforms. So it'd be fair to Dan Weston and, 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 and Joe, they didn't when they started. They just kept putting the information out there and then teams started, you know, saying to them, oh, this is interesting. And next thing you know, they're in the fold. So that's it. That's the gig. You know, start with Crick Sheet and see what you can find from there. How to judge a catcher on, on how good they are. Uh, catch innings ratio or catch efficiency. Uh, Smith um, uh, catches per innings is uh, 0.853. Well, anyone who fields in the slip is going to have a high catch efficiency, even if they drop a lot of catches. So I certainly don't think that works, if, if that's what you mean. If you're looking at how many catches he's dropped, so you've got here that, that Smith is, uh, he has dropped 70, uh, 28% of his catches. I think the average in test cricket is about 23%. But then you have to factor in how many extra catches he's getting and whether in the slips that changes um, or anything else. That, to me, would play like he's a below-average fielder for his era, but I'd have to have a look at the whole era. And then you would have to factor in how many extra catches he gets. And also, not all catches are equal. So at the moment, we don't really have a system. You know, catch percentage um, or drop percentage or whatever you want to use is the best option. It's pretty limited because you look at someone like Ben Stokes, who I don't think is as good a catcher as maybe his reputation is. But he also gets his hands to a lot of balls that other people don't. And so he probably has a higher drop percentage just by, by his sheer athleticism and his you know power off the mark and the way he can uh, move his body around. So it's certainly not a very good um, system from that point of view. But also not sure that we have you know, anything. <laughs> I'm not sure that we have anything particularly better. Uh, Rocky says, is Ireland Associate Nation or a full member? So in men's, they're a full member. They have played a test, but I, the memory was that they're not a full member in women's. But maybe uh, I'm not an expert in women's associate cricket. Um, I haven't really seen that much of it. I've watched a little bit of Thailand play because they're quite interesting. Uh, and Brazil um, play. I'm trying to think of any other. Uh, I know a little bit about Scotland. But, yeah, I, I'm not. I, my, I know that Ireland women played a test match against Pakistan women, I want to say, in the early 2000s. But I don't know if they have test status anymore, if they're, if they're allowed to, and whether that counts as them as a full nation or not. So I'm not sure um, from that perspective. Uh, I'm assuming you're asking that about, you know, the Women's Premier League and whether they could play as a social. And I just, I just don't know the answer. Um, the, best one to, the best one for that would be to contact uh, John Leather, uh, Hypercourse on Twitter. He knows everything about everything. AJ says, what difference do you see between the WPL and WBBL? About an extra zero in everyone's paycheck. I mean, they just sold the women's. Uh, uh, it, I mean, before it had even started, it, it's basically the second or third highest paying, uh, oh, sorry, highest um, grossing women's uh, tournament in the world, right? WBBL is at that. That's the main difference. It just has a much higher ceiling. WBBL is a really good tournament and I think it will continue to grow and it'll be quite interesting um, how it does. And it's in some ways the women's hundred kind of moved beyond it by being a little bit more on even footing with the men. But, um, but yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think a hundred percent that it's, um, that they're just not the same thing. You know, the women's premier league is a, it's a huge thing and, and a really interesting thing going ahead. All right. Last one, another super chat. Uh, where are we here? Saga. Thank you. Why do India? Uh, why do things like India push the talent way more than players who have grinded and have good domestic record? E.g., Pant or Rahul over uh, Mayank and Samson. When you are selecting, you are not selecting based on how good someone is in first-class cricket. 
That's a, a really good indicator and still one of the best indicators we have. But you are actually looking at something very different there. Um, what you're really looking at is um, how those skills will translate to the next level. And test cricket is different. The extra day makes it different, uh, especially if you're a bowler. If you're uh, a batter, the fact that you need to have a more rounded game than you do in first-class cricket, because in first-class cricket, you're probably only going to come up against the same bowling attack twice in a year, um, and it might be months afterwards, and they may not even remember you, right? So from that perspective, it's it's a completely different um, uh, you know, format. And there's many other reasons why, you know, in, in first class cricket, you play mostly on this similar kind of pitches and in test cricket, you know, the pitches are all done. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you've got KL Raul in this list and he averages what 50. I, I just did it in a video. I think he averages 54 in first class cricket outside of playing for India. He does have a good domestic record. <laughs> uh, Rishabh Pant, I don't know. I have to go through the numbers. Uh, Rishabh Pant's just an obviously next level player. Um, Sanjay Sampson, I think Sanjay Sampson is probably has a very good career in another nation. He's probably, and I'm a huge fan of his, um, and have been for a long time. But I think if you if you look at him pound for pound, he's probably not quite on that level as everyone else. Um, and then Mayank, I think he'll still have a chance. The way that the way everyone's struggling to make runs at the moment, I think he's still got a chance. Um, but I do think um, overall, uh, you know that. We just have to be honest here. There's so many players. Um, what you are trying to do really is, especially in the situation of India at the moment, is I think what you're trying to do is, what's the best way of putting it? I think what you're trying to do is find a, you know that there's so many extra talented players. What you don't really want is players who are just good enough. What you have the ability to do at the moment is potentially find players who are absolutely next level. And it's very similar to going back to what Australia did. Australia really only start to pick players like Mike Hussey after they've had their massive success. Um, Mike Hussey probably doesn't fit into the Australian team in the 90s because in the Australian team in the 90s, they're looking for the next guy who's going to come in and average 50 um, from the age of 22 to the age of 34, right? That's what they're looking for. They're looking for Damian Martin, uh, Ricky Ponting, uh, Michael Clark type players. And those sorts of players, a little bit more like Mike Hussey or Adam Voges, who do develop later and everything else, are really, you know, they're, um, they're almost like high-functioning role players. In, in Mike Hussey's case, he was exceptionally high-functioning, but no one expected Mike Hussey to average that much um, playing test cricket. And same with Adam Voges, to be fair. But in both cases, they were picked pretty much in the, at their peaks. And in Adam Voges case, he was kind of discarded at the first sign of weakness. And even in Mike Hussey's case, you know, um, he wasn't particularly old when, when they started to move him on, although he was getting on at that point. And so those are different kinds of players. And, and I think that what the Indian system is looking at is, you know, in Syria Kumar, they might think they have someone a, a little bit like that sort of Mike Hussey, late developing Adam Gilchrist type of player. But they are looking for players who are very, very high ceilings. And look, I don't disagree with that because I understand the general principle. I tend to think that if you just keep looking for players with high ceilings, you end up with a lot of boom and bust players. Um, and there may be a better way of doing it. But it seems to be now that it's really hard to get into the Indian batting lineup if you don't average 60, right? So if you don't average 60 to begin with, or at least 50 um, in first-class cricket, you're not even going to get uh, you know, a, your foot into the door more often than not. And that means that they it feels like they're doing very much what Australia um, did uh, a, a ways back, where they were looking for those once-in-a-generational talents, or they're backing the players that they trust. And I think they do trust KL Rahul. As, as we've said before, as I said in the video out today. Uh, Anurag says, has baseball been beneficial for everyone but Joe Root? Someone else mentioned this to me today, Anurag. I, it, it's an interesting one because I, I, you say last seven tests, I think he looked pretty good at the start of baseball. So it could just be a normal dip and we're overlooking it. But today he did reverse paddle a ball to slip. Um, and I'm not sure he needed to. So today it wasn't beneficial to him. Um, but I suppose he's winning a lot more tests. So he's probably a lot more happier than he was before. Anyway. I'm going to leave it here. Uh, thank you very much uh, to everyone. Great uh, chat uh, today. Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, I sounded coherent through most of that podcast. And uh, I will be back again. I have absolutely no idea when I'll be back again. But I'll be back again at a certain point. But I'm going to go sleep now. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, Bodyline T-shirts. I've got the Stick of Rhubarb T-shirt on today. I think it's one of the best cricket T-shirts, the Stick of Rhubarb. 
because you really have to be such a nerdish cricket fan to get it. Um, if you like, I don't know, having a traceable T-shirt. Someone should make a traceable. Borderline T-shirt should make a traceable T-shirt. Remember to support 99.94 podcasts. Uh, the uh, K.O. Rahul videos out. If you haven't seen it, go and do that. Um, uh, that, that was fun to make. Uh, and what else? And if, everything else. Support us on Patreon and, and everything else. But huge thanks to everyone who came in live today. Remember, you can watch us on Twitter, Facebook, um, and YouTube now, uh, all live, or you can just listen to the podcast. But this has been Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimber. This is my show, and I will see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapiya producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. 